hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 30 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green. And today I sat down with Terry Bryant, the founder of Guide Beauty. As a professional makeup artist and beauty educator, techniques that had been second nature during her whole career became suddenly much more challenging. Shortly after losing the precision that she had always had, Terry was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, where she experienced firsthand the frustrations of applying makeup and created Guide Beauty a collection of makeup tools and products that reimagine the application process. Awarded Best of Beauty by Allure Magazine and ranked one of Oprah Magazine's Best Beauty Products of 2020, Guide Beauty provides an easier and better way to apply makeup. In this episode, Terry shares with us her career journey from working behind the Estee Lauder beauty counter at Saks Fifth Avenue in New York to working at top beauty brands, including Stilla Cosmetics, Dior, and Smashbox, to creating and launching Guide Beauty during the pandemic. We talk about the importance of building an inclusive brand, what she learned about universal design, and how her background in elementary education worked for her rather than against her within the beauty industry. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Terry. Thank you so much for being on the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm super excited to hear your story and building Guide Beauty. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So let's get started from the very beginning. Um, Where did you grow up? Where are you from? I grew up in Rochester, New York, just uh, about an hour outside of, uh, well, I guess outside of Buffalo and then next door to Canada. And uh, yeah, small town, nice upbringing. All right. Did you have any um, siblings and what were your parents doing at the time? So I have an older brother. He's three years older than my brother, Rob, and uh, my parents who have been together for 52 years. Wow. Uh, my father is a retired ophthalmologist. My mom was uh, a physical therapist uh, in the Air Force, and oh. she retired when she got married to my dad, and uh, years later actually was an entrepreneur herself and started a temp- tablecloth rental business called Table Toppers of Rochester. Uh, and uh, yeah. Do you think your mom inspired you to want to be an entrepreneur one day? That's a good question. I think, uh, you know, both of my parents were huge influences on my growth and my development and incredibly supportive. Um, I don't know if I recognize that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I recognize that whatever I wanted to do, I had support behind me. And uh, I certainly had an example that things were possible. That's amazing. And so what are some examples of them supporting you as a child? What does that mean? What did that look like? You know, they're, they're just good people. Um, you know, it's funny. I used to say that I, you know, middle school years are sort of those funny years. And I was an awkward kid when I got to middle school. And I was talking to my best friend the other day. 
And I said, you know, I, I keep thinking about how awkward I was in middle school. And then I realized it's probably awkward all along. Just people started telling me I was awkward when I got to middle school. Nobody said it beforehand. I mean, I went through funny phases. I always loved makeup, but you know, there was the phase where I decided I was going to be, I think I was seven. I was going to be a ventriloquist. And that whole year I walked around with a, with a, a dummy in my, <laughs> in my hand. And then two years later, I don't know how I saw the movie stir crazy with Richard Pryor uh, and June Wilder. And I decided I wanted to be a comedian. And for about a year, I mimicked uh, what I thought I was mimicking um, and doing a Richard Pryor impersonation. <laughs> Probably the worst. I don't know. It's. I mean, to imagine me at like eight or nine years old walking around the house doing what I thought was a Richard Pryor impersonation. It's strange to think about, but no matter what it was, they were on board. You want to walk around with a ventriloquist dummy? Go ahead. You want to pretend you're Richard Pryor for a year? Um, and my father used to, I, I did this sort of funny thing. I thought I walked like him. I spoke like him and my dad would do it with me. People would look at me like <laughs> I was the oddest thing around. And my dad would think that, eh, you know what, we'll do it with her. She'll look less odd in numbers. <laughs> That's awesome. uh, Yeah, they just they just were loving and supportive. That's really cool. And you said you were awkward as a kid. I definitely was too. I think I still am. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So what did you want to be when you grew up? You you mentioned a few things. But as you kind of went to high school and really started to consider a career path, what were you thinking at that time? I mean, I always loved makeup. My mom started taking me to the makeup counter with her when I was probably 10 or 11. We used to see Cesar. He was the makeup artist in town that anybody and everybody would go to. Uh, We would wait, you know, in the time in cosmetics, they would launch, brands would launch a seasonal collection. So four times a year, we would go to the counter and Cesar would sort of boost my mom's spirits and energy and, and embrace and celebrate her beauty. And I loved it. And so uh, you know, and also because I was probably a little on the awkward side, I spent a lot of time by myself playing in makeup. So she would get her makeup, she would put it away, say, please don't touch it. And then I would lock myself in her bathroom and play with all the makeup for hours on end. <laughs> uh, but I learned it, it helped me a lot. Actually, I think um, when I was younger, I wanted to be something else. I think I, I was awkward and I wanted to be maybe a little thinner. I wanted to be a little blonder. I wanted my nose to be a little smaller. There were a lot of things I wanted to be and I wasn't so secure. And somehow in the process of playing with makeup, I think I learned to appreciate myself. I think I would, I would play with makeup and then I would wash it off. And whatever I was doing, whatever I was celebrating, so whether I like, you know, made my lashes look big or bigger or my eyes look bigger or I sculpted my nose, there was some sort of recognition that my face was the canvas that was creating it. Mm. And so I started to learn to appreciate each individual feature until I eventually started to sort of appreciate the whole. And it was such a positive experience that I don't know at the time I realized I could be a makeup artist and I could enter the industry, but I remember thinking this feels good. And then when I realized I could do it for other people and I started to actually be able to connect with people in a way that I hadn't before, because the minute somebody sits in your chair as a makeup artist, it's a very intimate moment, right? You mm-hmm. are like, you are face-to-face. Yeah, you're, you're letting everything. Really face-to-face. <laughs> and you're letting them know it's all about them. I want to embrace and celebrate your beauty today. Like, that's it. And so you connect. And I learned how to connect to people that way. And so, you know, I went to school at Syracuse for elementary and special education. I was working behind a Chanel counter. And I remember going to, which actually Cesar, that makeup artist, helped me get my first job behind the behind the counter uh, at, at uh, the Carousel Mall in Syracuse. And I remember going to the first training, which he did, and I left that training, and I said, "That's exactly what I want to do." I loved it, and I drove home to my mom, and I said, "What am I going to do? I know you've been sending me to school for all these years to to be in education, but I want to teach people how to do makeup." And mm. she said, "Well, perfect. You're already there. You're in school for education." you're just not going to teach children. You're going to teach adults. 
Mm. And so I moved to New York and started telling anybody and everybody who would listen that this is where I want to be. And I was just hell bent that I was going to get there. That's awesome. So you really, that spark kind of came from that first makeup class where you're like, wow, this is super interesting. And I want to be that person teaching. Yeah. Um, And your appreciation for makeup is similar to my appreciation for fashion way back, you know, when I was younger, because it's very similar. It's like fashion allows you to be who you choose to be or become, right? It's kind of this... um, not mask, but it's a very positive way of expressing yourself in a lot of ways. And I think makeup is very similar. So it's cool that you made that connection so early. And I love, I I mean, I love hearing somebody else have the same experience because uh, yeah, I think it's unfortunate. A lot of times I think we hear the opposite in the world of fashion or beauty cosmetics, that it's this uh, feeling like you're either too intimidated to to even join in, or you feel like you're meant to use it as sort of a, as a a way to transform or change yourself as opposed to a way to express, enhance, Mm -hmm. celebrate. Yeah. Absolutely. And empower too, because it really, especially clothing, makeup, I mean, it really can help you kind of play the part of what you're trying to um, achieve, really, you know, like you want to get that job, you're going to dress a certain way, you want to be the boss, you're going to start looking a certain way. It's like you start, and then you start acting a certain way too, and you speak a certain way, and it just starts changing everything, but in a good way. But like you're saying, it's not a change for the worse. It's really actually enhancing the person. Yeah, we get to own that. Yeah, which is powerful in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, humans are multidimensional, you know, and it's kind of crazy that we're thinking that we should only be one certain way, um, you know, and kind of shaming the process of expression, whether it's makeup or fashion. Right. Yes. So you decided I want to do makeup education. This is for me. You're in New York City, I assume at this time. Um, So what was your first job after that? Like, how did you get going? So I knew at the time, every cosmetic company was in New York. There was no West Coast beauty industry, which uh, now obviously is huge. But it, but if you were going to pursue a career in cosmetics back in those days, you had to go to New York. So that's what I did. Uh, and I decided that the best place to go would be to go, get a job behind the counter. And so I went to Saks Fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. got a job behind the counter. Um, and that was a rough, <laughs> an exciting but rough road. Uh, Why is that? Um, you know, I just wanted to be the makeup artist and I loved sitting with the customer. I loved connecting. I loved spending time, you know, showing teaching technique. And, um, and then there was the other side of, uh, these were some really strong salespeople who were there on commission and they were tough and it was sort of, it was move a little quicker pace than I was used to. And it was uh, yeah, sort of get it done, get it, get in, get out. It was a tough competitive environment. And I kind of had to learn how to step up. And all I really wanted to do was play in makeup and just keep telling people, if you hear about a job in education, I'm really interested. I'd love to do it. Uh, just give me a shot, mm-hmm. uh, which I kept doing and, until finally somebody did. But uh, yeah, they, they were, it was probably a good thing for me to do. I might've been a little too soft before, <laughs> before I got there. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm glad I did it, but uh, yeah, they could be brutal. Yeah. New York city in general can rough up anyone. That's right. um, <laughs> That's it's a right. good place to get rough up training. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you said that you met someone who helped you get your first job um, as an educator in makeup. Who was that person and how did that happen? Yeah. So I was, so, you know, I'm working at Sex with Avenue. I think I started mm-hmm. buying the Estee Lauder counter. Um, I wanted a job with Chanel because that's where I had come from. And, uh, I, at that time I thought, you know, 
this was before makeup artist brands. This was before celebrity brands. This was before indie beauty brands. Mm -hmm. This was the day of, you know, those biggies. Right. And, and I loved it. And I still love Chanel, but, uh, and ended up that from Estee Lauder, I got a job with a company called Stila. And Stila was one of those first makeup artist brands. It was created by Janine Lobel. She was this brilliant makeup artist. I love her philosophy in beauty. She just had this brilliant way of looking at somebody's face and knowing how to celebrate a feature. And she makes it about the feature less than the makeup. And she created a technique that was so easy um, and not just for a makeup artist, but easier for the non-makeup artists, right? So you could teach them because it's one thing to teach and learn the steps to do makeup, but to apply and then to take it home and apply it to something completely different, right? Uh, and so I just, I just loved her. And so I went to work there and because it was a smaller company, I had access to more. And so when I went to go to those education programs, the head of education said, do you want to come in? You want to help? You want to assist? I said, yes, please. I'd love to. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I got to see a world and learn, you know, at least the beginnings of education in a way that I wouldn't have if I had stayed in a larger company. Mm -hmm. And while I was doing that, I'd become friends, obviously, with all the people I work with. And I kept telling people, if you hear something, if you hear something, I still, you know, I still didn't have a job in education. Uh, and one day the counter manager from the Christian Dior uh, counter came up and said, I hear there's a job. I hear they're looking for a trainer for the Northeast. And do you want me to throw your name in the hat? And she did, which was amazing. And um, I met with you know, my boss who introduced me to the vice president of education. And I got really lucky that, you know, it's interesting how things happen because I remember thinking, how am I going to transition into makeup when I am an elementary and special education major? Mm -hmm. And the reason they gave me the job was because of my background in education. Wow. And so being a makeup artist paired with that was the opportunity that I thought I had mucked up all those years ago. Right. That actually was, that was the reason I was able to sort of break my way in there. And because I was in New York and I was sort of had access to headquarters, I was part of, you know, every day, my day today was at the LPMH tower and I was working hand in hand with the vice president there. And uh, she was amazing. She was my, definitely, she was my first mentor. To this day, I credit her with, I, I can't even begin to tell you. I think she was uh, kind of my hero. And she certainly was somebody who made me realize I could do a lot more than I thought was possible because there was nobody like her. I'd never seen anybody like her. She was a powerhouse. She took a seat at the table with men. She never apologized for it. Um, yeah, she was, she was a powerhouse, that one. Um, and I thought, well, if I could even just be just the tiniest bit like her, um, I'd be thrilled. But she was also nurturing and empowering, and she invested in her team, and she taught me pretty much everything I know uh, in education. Hey guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a new report we're launching here at Future Commerce in partnership with Gladly called The New DIY. It's all about the new trend that has emerged around the passion economy and modern consumption, which begins with peer inspiration, continues with product education, and culminates into participation or an online purchase. The report covers how these trends start on social media, the importance of great customer experience across all brands, regardless of industry, and the implications this trend has on retailers. 
You can get the full report today over at futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. So it sounds like, I mean, I think we're all guilty of this where we think that something is actually working against us and it's actually working for us. <laughs> like your education background, you spend a lot of time probably thinking, oh, why did I do that? Why did I study and get, you know, go down this education path? It's not really what I wanted. I don't want to teach kids. I want to teach beauty. And boom, look what you have. It actually worked in your favor in the long run. Yeah. You know, I just find funny. I do find, at least in my personal experience, uh, so far in life, even sort of the things that have been the most challenging, mm-hmm. if you wait long enough, something beautiful will be born from it. Something good happens. Uh, it doesn't mean you wish for the, for the bad times or the struggles, or you're going to enjoy it when you think you've, you've just totally ruined everything. But if you just sort of take a, a breath, sort of, you know, give it a beat and wait for it and look for it, something, something good will, will come from it. So what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned from this experience, um, your first time with this, you know, job as an educator in beauty? What were some of the takeaways that you took from that? Yeah, I mean, she certainly taught me the value of, I mean, this was instilled by my parents, but the work hard. Mm-hmm. I saw that you had, she, she, she did have to work harder than everybody else. She was the first one in the office. If I was doing a training, you know, when you're doing trainings, you may go into the office or you may and be setting up a training at five o'clock in the morning because you have to get there hours ahead of when everybody else is going to be there. And when you're shutting down after a day of training, you may not be leaving there till nine o'clock at night because you're just, your hours are all, all, all wonky, right? She was always there. You know, she worked hard. I think I probably, one of the things I probably learned was, you know, and, and, and thinking back and along the way is it would be nice to find a little bit more balance than that. Like she shouldn't shouldn't have to work that hard and she was having to work harder. I didn't see anybody else doing the same, but she was there and, and it certainly worked for her. But I think she, she showed me what it was not only to work hard, but to invest in other people. She taught me that my success was her success and she celebrated her team way more than she ever celebrated herself. And I think she was successful because of it. And I thought she, she came from the right place. Yeah. And so I liked, I liked not only did I think she was brilliant at teaching, she was brilliant at educating. She knew how to share a story. She knew how to engage with people. She knew how to, yeah, she just knew how to tell that story and, and, and help people, but she did it for the right reasons. And she was really invested in people. And I think that was strongly one of the reasons that I really connected with her and so much wanted to be like her, not to mention that she was fabulous. I mean, (laughs) a woman could put it, put an outfit together, like nobody's business. So, well, she sounds like an excellent leader. So I'm sure you took a lot of um, notes from that as well in building your business. Um, So what happened from there after this awesome job? You know, how can you leave such an amazing opportunity? What was next? Well, I did cry when I left, when I left, because <laughs> um, I was growing with them. They were, mm-hmm. you know, they, I was advancing in my career at a pretty good clip and they were allowing me to do both of my loves that I was able to continue to be the makeup artist and, a, and uh, continue to be an educator. And they created a special program where, you know, at the time, all of the programs came, education programs came from France, and then they were adapted for the U.S. audience, and they decided to create a special artistry program that I could lead. And so it was, I mean, I loved it. It was amazing. Um, but while I was there, I got a call from, uh, at the time, an unknown brand named Smashbox. 
<laughs> and Smashbox was looking for somebody. They were they were growing really quickly. They had an amazing team of makeup artists who were already teaching in their own right, but they didn't have a structured education program and they wanted somebody to come in and develop it. And that meant moving to LA. And I wasn't married and I didn't have kids and I was still young and I was still super ambitious. And I thought, I love where I'm at, but I don't know if I'll ever have the opportunity to do this again. Like this is build it from from scratch. It's your world. You can create anything here. Mm -hmm. So I went, um, again, I cried several times on the way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it's a big risk. You know, you're somewhere you enjoy, you're enjoying it. You're, there's no real reason to leave, but then you get an opportunity that you basically can't give up. That's a tough spot to be in. Yeah. And I remember getting to LA and I remember my first week I got there and it was the first fashion week. And everybody I met was introducing themselves. They were like a director or producer. And I thought, Oh, where did I land? I need to go back to New York. I'm not going to stay here. Um, I'm definitely going to go back. I'm just going to do this temporarily now. And I'm going to, someday they'll let me run this, this, this uh, department from New York. And then a few years in, I fell in love with LA and that was the end of that. That's funny. So how was your experience at Smashbox? You had to structure this education program from scratch. What was that like? And how was your experience? I appreciate that you keep asking the questions about all the good stuff because <laughs> I'm realizing I really have been very fortunate. It was actually, it was, I mean, you know, with a few bumps along the road, that was also a fantastic experience, probably for the same reason that Stila was because I had come from learning what it, what it was to work at a very structured, large corporation, right? So Christian George under LVMH, there's a lot to learn there. I was solely focused on education. I wasn't going to get to see and be part of the rest of the cosmetics world and the other departments. I wasn't really that involved with sales, product development, marketing, creative. When I got to Smashbox, you were, if you were there, you were invested. We were trying to build something together. We had a, a story to tell. We were doing something different. And so if you were there, you were passionate about being there. And we all worked collectively as a team. So I got to, you know, start working hand in hand with product development and creative and sales. And so, so all of these things at the time, I didn't realize it, all of those things were starting to build a skill set and a knowledge base to ultimately do what I'm doing now. Certainly I have a lot more to to learn, but there was a lot that I never would have gotten anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Um, And to this day, my core group of, of, uh, of gals are from that job. So, and, and there's several of us who have started brands together and we all lean on each or, or not at the same time, not together, but have started brands and we, we lean on each other. We talk constantly and it's nice to have them, but we all, we sort of all have uh, cheered each other on now the same way we cheered each other on when we worked, you know, building this brand, this, this unknown brand at the time. People can remember Smashbox. They would say Smash Mouth. I mean, <laughs> just they couldn't. And now to think back on it, you know, who doesn't know what Smashbox yeah. is, right? So, um, but but it was an exciting time for sure. So you got to be part of so many different. Um, you wear so many hats basically at Smashbox um, in building this program out. And you mentioned that you were able to build your skill set, and that's helped you as an entrepreneur today, who also has to wear a ton of hats. What are what are some of those skills that you learned at that time that were so helpful? I mean. As a manager, I think one thing I learned was, you know, how to work. And, and this started from Dior too, is I wanted to work with people who knew more than me. <laughs> I want, I wanted to, and I wanted to learn from them. I also learned that I was going to be better in my role if, you know, 
I want to rely on the expert to do their job. I want to, I want to pull in the people who balance out sort of the skill sets. So where's, where my strengths are, are my strengths and where they don't lie, somebody else can come in, but I don't want to just rely that they're going to do it. And I don't need to have any knowledge base whatsoever. And I learned that as much as I could take in, as much as I could understand about the education, I think what I learned is understanding how the products were developed was going to better inform what I created in education. Understanding how we were going to market it was going to better inform how I was going to develop an education program. Understanding how we were going to sell it was going to better inform how I developed an education program. So learning as much as I could about every piece of that puzzle was only going to benefit what I was going to do in my own world. And so I think, I think that was probably the biggest takeaway. Awesome. And what about, you know, and growing something from scratch like that, um, is, was a new challenge, right? And so were there any mistakes that you made along the way or challenges that you had to overcome? And and what were those? Uh, yeah, there were certainly challenges. I mean, I think the challenges are are probably almost a little bit more forgiven because everybody understands that we're kind of just, we're all in it together and we're going to figure it out as we go. And you are bound to, to hit some. Um, I think probably some of the earlier challenges were sort of working my way through early products that I knew weren't the winners yet hmm. and learning how to get comfortable asserting myself and saying, I don't know that we want to even train this. I don't think we've got the winner, but you have somebody saying, all right, well, we're all in this together. So what are we supposed to do now? Is there a way to make, like you had to figure out how are we going to make it better till we, can we get to where we need to go with what we have? Cause who's going to start from scratch and bring in a whole new line of products, <laughs> right? Because one person says, I'm not sure this is right. Nine times out of 10, there was a way to tweak it. There was something you could do, but I think I had to learn to get a little stronger and stand up and say, if it's not right, it's not right. And if you push hard enough in the right way, people will generally start to voice the same. It's usually you're not alone in what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. And then, and then collectively can start to, to work around and figure out how to make it better. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you're saying that, you know, you struggled with being a little assertive. What advice would you have for, you know, entrepreneurs out there or just you know, people working, you know, and want to be assertive and they're not really sure how to speak up or they're afraid? What advice would you have to them? Yeah, it's challenging. I certainly still work on it to this day. I don't think, you know, it may be a generational thing. I, I'm assuming it still happens today. Uh, I'm going to say I'm sure it happens to men as well. But as a woman uh, and as a young girl, I certainly wasn't raised to have an assertive voice. I was, I wasn't told not to speak up, but it just wasn't what you did, right? Mm-hmm. It was a be a little softer smile. So when I got into the business world, uh, you know, I found myself at tables with people, sort of a little unsure if I should speak up, and I also found myself when I tried to, sort of sometimes being run over by these stronger voices mm. who didn't even notice that I was trying to say something. And my first instinct would be, well, their voice is stronger than mine. Maybe I'll just shrink back and and wait until I can maybe possibly get a word in. When it came time to do this, I had to. And, and start my own company, I really had to think about it because, you know, I know that that might be my instinct, right? I know that that could happen. And so I had to say to myself, first of all, cut yourself a break, right? Like, don't beat yourself up. There's going to be times, learn from each one. If you didn't stand up, how could you do it differently next time? But 
I had to be sure why I was doing what I was doing. I had to make sure I knew why I was, was entering the room and stand strong in what I wanted to create. I just had to be sure. And so if you're starting something new, thousand percent know why you're there, know what you want to do so that when it does come time to speak up, you can stand confident that you are standing on something strong, right? Like if you know, at the end of the day, you're behind what you're, but you're doing what you believe in. You feel good about it. You know what your message is. Then, and you can go to bed and look in the mirror and say, I'm proud of what I said. I'm proud of me. I have no regrets makes it a lot easier to voice your, your, you know, your message a little bit more strongly. Right. Yeah. So uh, I think that's, that's the best thing to do. It's easier said than done at times, but it does help. Yeah. Cause I think even to get to that point, to feel that confident about what you want to say is a confidence, you know, issue as well. So you kind of first have to maybe have the confidence in yourself that what you want to say is valid and, you know, worthy of being said in the first place. And then the second part is they actually voice it and not care what people are going to say or think, or if they railroad do or not you know, that's right it out <laughs> that's right and and there are people who push back right and okay. certainly people are going to be pushed back and if you're doing something new or, or being just you know they say disruptive now really if you're just making any change there are going to be people who don't want to hear it and so mm-hmm. you know are you ready to fight the good fight Cool. So you learned how to be assertive, which is awesome and definitely necessary as a founder. Um, <laughs> so what happened from there? You're at Smashbox, you built this program. Um, what was next? So there were several steps along the way. I think from Smashbox, I, I left at the time, you know, I don't know that I ever aspired necessarily to start my own company. I knew I wanted to grow in my position. I knew I wanted to be a powerhouse in education and artistry. And I, I just wanted to do what I loved. I left for a minute to help uh, another founder start a brand. It was the wrong choice to make. It was not my passion. It was not, I, I think I got, uh, swayed and then sort of romanced by the idea that I could be at the head of it and and develop it. But we were not like-minded at all. So it was a very short blip. And I went back to what I loved. And so I continued doing education for companies like Temp2, for Josie Marin. I started going on air at QVC and HSN and broadcast retail sort of as as a, a, a presenter, sort of sharing the brand stories on broadcast retail. Yeah. And, and while doing that, again, continuing to do the education programs and continuing to do the artistry. About 10 years ago, though, there was a bit of a shift in my skill set. I noticed that, um, you know, I'd always had this ability to sort of look at your face, know exactly how I wanted to celebrate it with makeup. And my arm and my hand was just this very direct extension of my mind's eye. And for some reason, there was a little bit of a disconnect. Like I just couldn't do it as quickly as easily. It wasn't as effortless. I was, you know, on set and I was doing a technique that should have normally taken, you know, 10 minutes and, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes into it. I remember the model saying, what is taking you so long? And I thought, I have really have no idea. Or just hmm. doing my friend's makeup for her wedding. And I went to do her brows and I got one brow down and I went to do the next. And they always say, you know, your brows are sisters. They're not twins, but like these guys weren't even related. They were just like on totally different planets. I had to tap out and another friend of mine was with me and I had to ask her to finish it. And that was odd for me, right? Those were yeah. not struggles I had, but I ignored it and I felt my career pivoting. So I continued doing makeup artistry, but 
if you called me to do, you know, go on set and do one model for a full day shoot, I would say yes. But if you called me to do, um, let's say a runway show and I knew it was like fast paced and there was going to be mm. 50 girls and I had to knock it out, you know, within an hour, there was no way I would, I would just say no. And I was able to do it because I was still doing the education and I was going on air at, at QVC and HSN. So I was sort of pivoting because something was a little off but just decided to ignore it. And also because I I had looked into it and, and, you know, I'd seen a few doctors who were like, well, you're getting older. You should probably have more vitamin B. Are you getting enough sleep? Maybe you should Mm -hmm. exercise. I'm Mm -hmm. like, all right, well, that sounds fine. That must be it. Five years ago, that shift in my ability progressed enough that it actually started to affect my ability to do my own makeup. And I was like, all right, well, this is clearly something is, Mm. is not right here. And so I went to see a doctor, uh, you know, and there was a little bit of, of a moment that happened that got me to that doctor. But in about five minutes, he said, I think you have Parkinson's. And I said to him, well, you know, if you were a betting man, let's say, uh, you know, one to 10, what do you think? Like, how sure are you? So well, I'd like to send you for tests. And I thought there's no way what doctor ever answers that question. Right. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I'd like to send you for tests, but I'm going to give it a nine. Whoa. Went, oh, all right. A nine. <laughs> did not think you were going to answer that. And he, he turned out to be right. We did the tests. And, you know, I remember being in the room and my father was with me, he's a retired physician. And afterwards he said, you know, sweetie, you looked kind of like you glazed over there for a minute. You went, your, your mind obviously went somewhere else. Are you okay? What were you thinking? And I'm sure a lot of things had passed through my mind, but one thing that really stood out and what I remember was thinking, how am I going to continue doing my makeup? Mm-hmm. I can, you know, there are so many things you can do. You can get your hair blown out once a week. You can, you know, I throw on a caftan and a cocktail ring. It's a great outfit. That's easy enough. Like I could figure these things out, but makeup's a daily thing. And it isn't just about the vanity of putting on makeup. It's my livelihood. It's mm-hmm. my passion. It's my creative outlet. This, this is how I've learned how to connect with people. My greatest friendships have been born from being in this industry. I don't want to let this go. But there was something empowering about now finding out what was happening. I had ignored it for almost 10 years. Now I knew that I wasn't crazy. There was something wrong. Maybe I can fix this. So I like ran home almost immediately and started thinking, I bet you I could recreate. I could reimagine makeup for myself. I bet you I can create some new tools. I'll, I'll figure this out. I'll, I'm going to rethink it. I know the mechanics of artist, good artistry. I'll figure out what I need to do. And I'll create tools for myself so that I can continue on in this industry that I love. And at some point I was working on a prototype. It was a, a mascara. At the time it was like a finger puppet. Uh, it was probably, I, I have it somewhere, but it was probably crazy looking. But I remember looking at my husband saying, I'm like, this is actually really easy. This is easy. Like right now, I mean, could you imagine if I had had this all those years for all those thousands of people I was trying to teach how to do makeup and make it easier for them. Wouldn't that have been great? And oh my goodness, did I just like then that aha moment of, you know, out of obviously not the best news in the world, something beautiful for me was born, which is I had spent all these years trying to figure out how to help people apply makeup with the same level of ease and confidence, the same joy I had. Mm-hmm. I was wanted to, I wanted to pass that on, but I couldn't always do it effectively, not with with the existing tools and formulas that were out there. And part of it was because I didn't know what it felt like not to be a natural makeup artist. I couldn't walk in their shoes. I didn't know what that felt like. Now I found myself in this sort of unique white space. I know what it feels like to be the makeup artist. And now I know what it feels like to have enough of a disconnect to why I can't achieve it 
just because the tools in my hand and just because I can see what I want to do. There's some, there was some miss between makeup and applying and I was going to find that answer. So I realized that I could do something sort of bigger and you know larger than myself. So I set out to start to reimagine makeup application for, you know, people like me who have a physical limitation. And then for every person who's just ever said, it's not that easy because some techniques just are not that easy. Yeah. No makeup artist ever has said, I'll be there in two seconds. I'm just going to throw on this winged eyeliner, right? Like right. Some, some things are just I'm not I'm definitely easy. not that person. Right. <laughs> like I need a <laughs> solid few minutes to get that figured out. Right, but I'm, right. I'm actually really curious because this is, you know, it seems you have a very strong, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs do, they have a very strong ability to problem solve. And you basically went to a doctor, we're told this horrible news. And instead of going, home and kind of, you know, I'm sure you had your moments. I'm sure we all would, but you went home and were like, how do I solve this problem? And that is very unique. Like most people don't do that. So where do you think that comes from? Where do you think this, I have to solve this problem. And instead of trying to eat a bunch of kale and hope that works, you know, <laughs> what can I do to actually create something new and different? Um, where do you think that problem solving comes from? I mean, I think there's several things. One is I am a creative. And so giving me the challenge to create something new is always going to excite me, right? Like I just naturally love, it's why I like being a makeup artist. Certainly that plays into it. The other piece or several pieces are, you know, certainly you have one of two options, right? You can stop in your tracks and that's the end, or you can figure out how to, move forward. I would happily make fun of myself because you could the smallest tiny thing. If I put my, put my quarters or in, in the vending machine and the candy gets stuck, I will fall apart. <laughs> and like, it doesn't, doesn't but like something tiny. I can't open the soda can and I'll, you know, I'll have a breakdown. But when the big things hit is when I tend to do my best is when I tend to, when, when everybody else is crumbling is when I look around and say, all right, no, 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 no. I got this. We got this. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a nurturing moment for me. It's sort of like, you know, I'm a terrible flyer. I'm afraid to fly. But if you sit next to me on a plane and you're nervous, I forget to be afraid for myself. I'm going to spend the next five hours telling you why we're going to be okay. <laughs> uh, so it might be, it might be part of that. The other piece is that this is not the hardest thing that has ever happened in my life. It's not the greatest thing that's ever happened. But prior to this, I had such a jarring moment in my life that was so hard for me to get through that almost, and, and because I have come out on the other side of that moment, I think it set me up to handle almost everything else that has come since then in a much stronger way. Because for me, I can't imagine, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, at this point, I have no plans to ever have children. So I don't, I can't imagine ever experiencing something that painful. And so I, yeah, I think if I could get through that, I can get through anything. So that also might be part of the reason that uh, when I got it, I was like, all right, this is just one other thing. It's not as bad as that other thing. I can handle this. Right, right. Are you able to share what the jarring moment was or is if it's yeah. too personal, it's totally fine? No, no, to. no, no. I mean, and that's actually the other thing I learned from from, uh, from that experience is, uh, you know, I used to be um, uh, very closed. I would not share things that happened, mm -hmm. mostly because I thought that it was a burden to other people. Mm. Uh, and I've learned over the years that sharing is what connects you to people and it's yeah. so helpful. Um, yes. and so now you can't shut me up. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll tell anything to everybody. Uh, I probably should probably, I should probably find the balance. Um, a, a friend, uh, my, my dearest, bestest friend, my clo the closest person in the world to me took his own life. Mm. Um, and 
it was devastating. Um, yeah. He, 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 yeah, he, um, it was sad. It was hard to, first of all, you, it was hard to, to walk in. It was hard to, to find him. It was hard to have a note mm. left for me. It was hard to understand how it happened, how I missed all those, all those signs. Um, it was hard to get through what I could have done to make it different. Mm. Um, and what finally got me through is that I can't let this be the end of his story. He can't be gone and something, I have to make something good come from this because mm-hmm. he deserves it. Right. Yeah. And so, Oh, look, I'm going to get emotional. Who saw that coming? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I, you know, I think that certainly I think this would make him proud. I think he'd yeah. be excited to see the journey I'm on. So um, yeah, I feel like it, it knocked me down for quite some time. There were yeah. moments I didn't, I didn't want to keep going. And so, yeah, yeah. If that didn't toughen me up. I don't, I don't know what else would. Yeah. I'm so sorry for your loss, but I'm, I'm glad that you're able to kind of use it in that way to make you stronger and, and deal with other things that you're like, yeah, that's nothing. Let's get to work. I'm going to now develop an entire company (laughs) around the application of makeup. You just watch, you know? So it's also has kind of a secret power to it as well, which is really interesting. So you decided I'm going to make these different applicators that can be helpful for people like me that are struggling, but you also kind of realize that it is way broader than that as well. And I, we spoke briefly about this before about inclusivity, and I'd love for you to share, you know, what your thoughts are on that, the culture shifts, the customer shifts and designing products around, you know, different skin tones. And we went through like different abilities. It's so interesting. I'd love for you to share. Yeah, I mean, you know, I can remember, certainly remember back to almost every company I've ever worked with and sitting in the room with all the players and you would go through the same exercise when you were figuring out who you were marketing to, who you were creating for, who you were talking to. And down to, we were always creating one person. She And, and she was almost always the same person. You know, maybe the name changed, type of car she drove. But you could almost picture her. She, you know, her name was, uh, you know, Megan. Megan lived in uh, Los Angeles. She drove a BMW, but it was a three series, and she worked in PR. She wasn't, uh, she wasn't the head of PR. She was the, you know, but she was the assistant to the head, so she's on her way. She loves to do play. You know, these are the things she loves to do, and the like, and and none of us ever questioned it. But when you look back, and and we think about the shifting culture and this awareness of inclusivity how less inclusive could you be (laughs) in your process to actually be sort of design creating speaking to one human being. Mm -hmm. And so I think over the past 10 years, there's been this shift where in the beauty industry, they've started to realize we need to cast a wider net. We need to be thinking about uh, larger groups. We need to be thinking about community. Um, And I think the first things that people realize is we, weren't addressing the needs of different skin tones, women and men of color. We were primarily talking to women. And so gender had to come into play because everybody wears makeup uh, and skincare. And so those things are starting to be addressed and companies are starting to, to build that into their thought process uh, from the ground up, as opposed to trying to make accommodations after the fact to allow somebody to maybe enter their world, which is not the most welcoming. It's like, you can, you can come in, but sit over there. Right. 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 Uh, yeah, so for us, because we sort of started with, a, you know, I had always recognized that makeup wasn't easy for almost for most users or certainly a lot of techniques, but 
figuring out how to change things came from a change in my own ability. And so, you know, I had spent about six months developing my products on my own and realized I was sort of going to hit a wall. So we ended up bringing my prototypes to a design team that specializes in human factor, human factors, engineering, and ergonomics. And they introduced me to a concept called universal design, which I am now beyond passionate about because I think it is approach, an approach we should take almost in everything we do, where they say, talk about casting a, a wider net. Think about the needs of the greatest group and include those who have the greatest need. And in the process, you will end up creating a better product or process for the whole. So we set out on that journey when we started creating our products and our prototypes by bringing you know, over 200 test users, all different skill sets and abilities. We watched people in action. We watched them using the products. We learned where they where sort of the, the roadblocks, where there were struggles, where there were challenges. And then little by little by little, it's like all these little iterations uh, to finally get to a place where you watch somebody pick something up and say, this is easier. And it was easier for you no matter who you were. It was easier whether you had arthritis and Parkinson's. It was easier for you whether you were a makeup artist. It was easier for you if you were a busy mom who said, I want to wear makeup, but I only have two minutes in the morning, so give mm -hmm. me a break. So, yeah. uh, you know, by, and I think that's what we talk about when we talk about inclusivity and universal design. It's this idea that from the ground up, think about the needs of the widest, largest group possible. And that's how you get a better product. And so I know we talked a little bit about companies who do that, like Nike and Under Armour and this OXO, these great inspirational stories that sort of helped inspire my own. Um, but I think it's a great process. And I, and I think, you know, again, I, I think that the industry, there needs to be a shift of thinking. You're mm -hmm. not creating, it's not an us and that. You're not creating a separate product. You're right. creating one better product for the whole. It's so true. I remember, um, you know, I used to model back in the day. So when you're talking about the runway shows and stuff like that, I'm like, I wonder if we ever worked together one time. Um, but anyways, oh, maybe, I, <laughs> maybe, you know, um, but I remember in the showrooms, the designer or the buyers, you know, from these stores, they would refer to their customer as she, or, you know, oh, she wouldn't wear that. No, she, she would love that one though. You know, and it'd be this whole thing. And I'm like, who are they talking about? Right? And you kind of like start realizing that's what they refer to their customer as. And yeah, they've put a name on her. They had know what car mm -hmm. she drives, they know where she works. And it's like this whole thing and the way they would talk about the different garments and saying, oh, she would wear that or never wear that. And I'm thinking... I don't know, because I might wear both, actually, you know, I might want to spice it up once in a while, you know, it's just so interesting how they pigeonhole their customer. And they're talking about, oh, you have to know your customer, know your customer. But I think, you know, like you said, a customer is much more broad than that. Like we're multidimensional. There's so many different types of personalities out there. It's, um, it's a lot more than what they used to think. And this is very interesting. So that's very cool that you learned about this kind of universal design. Um, when did you start realizing, you know, hey, this is something I want to run with. I've, I've got the company going. Like, how did you get it off the ground? So, I mean, you know, I started creating again for myself and I'd worked on it for about six months. And uh, and I, actually, I, 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 I shelved it for a minute. I, I sort of got to a certain point um, and, you know, don't know if I had the confidence to get to next level. Why did you shelve it? I shelved it. And when I say shelve it, I sort of, I was still creating for myself. I didn't know if I was going to be able to figure out how to get there on a broader scale because I was creating a prototype. I was creating something new. So in the world of cosmetics, generally you go and you pick your compact and you deco it. 
you pick a formula, you make an adjustment. I mean, there are exceptions, certainly, but everything I was doing was custom. And when you're doing everything custom, the minimums are higher. You have to have design. I mean, the, the cost to do it is, is, is high. And also because I, I knew, I know myself, uh, it, it's not that I'm not willing to jump in and do everything, but I like to work collectively. I like, I like the right team. I like my players. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to do this together. And so I sort of put it aside for a minute and, um, sort of maybe in a little way did what I did when I was back at uh, Saks Fifth Avenue, sort of whispering to anybody who I thought might be the right moment and the right person to say, if you ever hear about a job in education, I, mm -hmm. I want it. This was, um, if you ever hear of anybody who wants to reimagine the, the beauty industry, <laughs> I got something to show them. And I was fortunate that, that didn't take long that I, you know, my husband and I, and it's, it's, you know, I'll have to thank my parents again because it happened through a personal relationship they had, but uh, we reconnected with some, some a dear friend who is an entrepreneur and he and his business partner happened to be looking around and wanting to, to do something in the beauty industry. At the time, they were not necessarily thinking that they would start something from scratch, but you know, we sat down and we spoke and they got it and they knew what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, talk about lucky, right. Uh, talk yeah. about being extremely fortunate and we decided to take the journey together. And so, um, then I had the right resources because, uh, you know, you do need, you do need that behind you. It's, it's, uh, there's some things that, uh, you know, everything takes more time. Everything takes more money, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, whatever you plan for, uh, you know, typically double it, I'd say triple it. Um, <laughs> so you have to be realistic about, you know, I mean, what I've continued on. Yes. Would it have probably been another 10 years from now before I would have gotten there? Yeah. Probably so. It's interesting. So this is the second time you've brought up that you have kind of put out feelers Mm -hmm. Um, and that's worked for you. And I think that's really interesting. I think there's a lot of people out there that are probably afraid to put out feelers. Yeah. Um, you know, partly cause it's, uh, that might also be in my personality. I do, you know, I have uh, that group of, of close knit friends. I talk about who we all grew up in the industry. We all have very different personalities. There's, you know, I'm probably in the middle ground. I have one who will just keep one girlfriend who will just run. She doesn't need like, she's not looking both sides before she crosses the street, she's just going. And the other one who, you know, who will, will sit and, uh, you know, and watch the, like, she's just very cautious and she doesn't want to ask for help. And I'm probably somewhere in the middle of that. Um, one is, you know, I believed in what I was doing. I felt strongly that I had the right product and I had the right story and that I had nothing to lose by sharing it. I certainly wasn't going to, you know, putting a gun to their head. I felt like I had something special to share. Mm -hmm. And so the approach has always been, you know, if you're interested, if you want to talk, I'd love to share it. I feel really good about what I've got here. I'm, I, you know, and when you're excited, you know, I think it's easier to get people on board because you're contagious. so passionate. It's contagious. And, yeah. but yes, you do, you do need to, you know, the fact that, um, you know, I, I've sort of grew up with a family who, who made certain introductions for me. My mother introduced me to Cesar, the makeup artist at, at the Chanel counter. He helped me get my first job behind the counter, right? Mm -hmm. Like from there, you know, being, and the fact that I, you know, was able to go to, to Syracuse, let's thank my parents for that. <laughs> right. right. Uh, so that allowed me to, to also get that job. And then the people you meet along the way. Um, but I think you're doing yourself a disservice 
if you feel like you have something to offer and you're, if you're doing yourself a disservice, you're doing somebody else a disservice, give them the opportunity to say yes or no. Mm -hmm. You've got nothing to lose. You're really, I mean, the worst case scenario, it's even when, you know, I'm sort of fast forwarding ahead, but I, you know, I remember we'd spent three years developing this product. Um, We were fortunate about two weeks before the pandemic hit and they locked everything down. We went to New York city. My husband and I went with the girl with our PR um, uh, team to New York to meet with beauty editors. And I was so confident this whole time we got something special. People are going to love it. People are going to love it. And then I was on the plane and I turned to Mike and I said, what if they don't like it? (laughs) What if they don't like it? What if I was wrong? And he said, you know what? Then we'll go home, we'll have cocktail hour, you'll have a lot of makeup to wear for the rest of your life, and we'll just, we'll have a nice life. That, that's all, it's all okay. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, obviously I would have been a lot, he would have had to, to do a lot more than just say that if it hadn't worked out, but there is perspective, there's perspective in that, right? Like you, I know at the end of the day, I think what I always tend to think about is I will never regret asking I will never regret trying, but I certainly know I will regret if I don't. And so um, I'm happy to deal with the sadness or the frustration or the, you know, the anger of whatever comes. If it doesn't work out my way, I'm not willing to spend the rest of my life wondering what if. Yeah. That's excellent. And that's really good advice. And I agree with you completely. And that's well said. Um, Tell us about, so it sounds like this was one of the challenging moments, I guess, like going and putting yourself out there, but you know, what has been one of the most challenging moments in building your business and how did you overcome it? Yeah. I mean, certainly time, time and, uh, and is, is probably one of the biggest challenges. I mean, you know, we launched during a pandemic, so that alone was a challenge, but I think, you know, you, when you're launching anything, you do, you, you do all the planning in the world. Um, and you try to get everything sort of lined up and all your ducks in a row. And you, you just, I know exactly how this is going to go with an understanding that you launch and nothing is going to go as you planned. And then you just got to learn how to kind of scramble and pivot. And I certainly didn't, I knew that going in, I knew that from my experience in helping other brands, I knew that because my partners who are entrepreneurs who kind of gave me a little like heads up, Terry, this, this kind of how it goes, be ready for it. Um, I don't know if I could have, I could have planned for a pandemic, but, um, you just, you know, a, I wasn't alone, uh, in doing that. Um, I just didn't know what was going to happen. I, I think that was probably the biggest moment. I just didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know, you know, our launch strategy was going to have to change. I couldn't get in front of people anymore, at least personally in a room face to face. People Mm -hmm. weren't going to be in store shopping. I couldn't talk to the retailers that way. So I think I just had to take a step back and think, you know, what are we doing here? People connect. You know, I think when people are shopping um, or when people are purchasing, I think people have always wanted to connect to something. And, you know, hopefully they wanted to connect to the kind of the community uh, that we're creating at Guide Beauty. And I couldn't get face to face, but there is something called social media, mm-hmm. right? So I just have to find and meet people where they're at. And if mm-hmm. it wasn't where I thought they were going to be initially, here's where they're at. So this is where I need to focus. And now uh, everything's pointing in that direction. I want to talk to where I can. And it turned out, again, as life often does, this 
oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? This is a disaster. I'm not going to be able to get desk sides. I'm not going to be able to meet with the editors anymore. I can't send this PR packet out because they don't want to accept anything because they're afraid it's going to be contaminated. And what ended up happening is there was this, this community of people who said, you know, we're all at home. We'd all like to connect to people. We're all kind of losing it a little bit. We'd all like to play. We'd like some, like without being tone deaf, right? Because you have to be, be aware that this is not an easy time, but people were looking for an escape and people who may not necessarily have talked to me before were willing to talk to me now because, and, and I actually had one influencer say to me, we did a, a Zoom call. We talked for like two hours. It was like the nicest conversation. And she was very honest. She said, you know, I, I, I love doing this, but prior to, to, to the pandemic, I probably never would have spoken to you. Life was too busy. I was running around. I, I mean, like physically running around, <laughs> running around. Yeah. But things are different. And it's made me realize I want to connect in a different way than I used to. So um, that's probably a long answer to come around again. But I think that I think that the real answer to your question is life's always going to hand you change ups. And then it's just about taking a step back and figuring out how you pivot with it. Yeah. And, you know, I think those meetings must have gone really well because um, whatever you've been doing, you guys have won quite a few awards. You are awarded Best of Beauty this year by Allure Magazine, Beauty Awards by Oprah Magazine. You've had double digit, you know, growth month over month during a pandemic. Um, do you think social media is a big reason for that? Or what has been your growth strategy? What's worked for you? Yeah. Well, th thank you very much. I appreciate that. That's very nice of you. Um, I, you know, I, I do think social media has played a huge role. I think the other thing is uh, going back to this concept of universal design and, in, and sort of this inclusive thinking in your process. When we started out, because we were approaching our development process through universal design, you are building your community from the get-go, right? So uh, you're involving them. We were creating for a need that they had already shared that they, along with me, had, right? And now we were saying, come be part of this development. So by the time we launched, there was already a support system. There was already a community of people who wanted to play in this world together and felt good about it. And so, um, you know, you don't always have that when you, when you sort of approach things the other way around. When you're like, let's create the product, let's create the story, then let's put it out there and try to get people to come on board. Uh, and not that there's right or wrong. I mean, that, that certainly has worked, but it's a, certainly a lot easier when, you know, when you know for a fact that you're creating it for your community because your community is actually helping you build your story and your brand. Um, so that was obviously a huge piece. And then, you know, I think we did get lucky because we were able to meet with the beauty editors ahead of time and they were talking about us as we were launching. So that, that was a, a great fortunate moment. And then, yeah, I, you know, it used to be, you'd go to a makeup counter and connect with the person standing there, or you'd connect with, uh, you know, an ad you'd see, uh, you know, in a magazine and, you know, or you'd connect with your neighbor who just bought whatever she bought, whatever it is, she bought her, you know, her favorite moisturizer and you're over there having coffee and she shows it to you and now you want to get it. We're, we're all sort of learning and connect from one another. We kind of buy by who we connect with. Social media is the same thing, but instead of having a cup of coffee with your neighbor who's showing you, you know, her favorite new mascara or moisturizer, it's an influencer talking to whether it's 50 or 50,000, they're telling you what they like. And if they're really engaged with their audience, that moves at a much faster clip. 
Absolutely. And so starting and growing a business involves a lot of um, personal and professional growth. How have you grown personally as a leader? Oh, good question. Uh, (laughs) How have I grown personally as a leader? You know, I think that one of the things that I've had to learn how to get a slightly, a little bit of a thicker skin, right? Um, I think part of what has helped me grow is I'll go back to the community of uh, women that I've grown up in the industry with, who we've become this network and this group of friends. And, you know, we lean on each other for resiliency and we lean on each other when we're trying struggling on you know, I've got this challenge. I'm working with this person. I'm not connecting. How would you handle it? And we share with one another. Um, so I think part of the, the best thing you can do and, and, and what has helped me tremendously if I'm you know, growing as a leader, or at least growing as, as in helping, you know, sort of build a brand and, and work with people is, is the reach out moment is the, is the don't, you don't have to figure it out. And if you hit a roadblock and you're not sure how to deal, talk to the people who do. Absolutely. So before we finish up here, um, just two questions. What is uh, next for your company? What can we see next from Guide Beauty? Oh, lots of good things. Um, right now we are busy in the guide lab. So we are coming out with color extensions. So we've had our community's been asking for more colors of our guideline cream eyeliner, best cream eyeliner. So we're coming out with some beautiful new colors. Um, we've got some fun, fun new innovation coming. I think what we'd like to do is finish off the eye area. And then as a little, a little hint to what might be coming and then, you know, feature by feature, eventually we want you to be able to have a whole, whole guide beauty face. So, uh, but everything we, we do will have that thoughtful moment, whether it's sort of this revolutionary, I want to make the application easier or just little thoughtful moments that just make it more pleasurable to use that will always be behind what we're creating. And we will always do that with, um, the community helping us build, build the better, the better mousetrap. Right. So, uh, so that's, what's coming down, down the pike. Awesome. And any final advice you have for entrepreneurs um, out there listening? Uh, if you if you are passionate, if you want to do it, get out there. Know that it is not easy and that is okay. Um, it's, yeah, there are days where you may want to hide under the table. Don't let anybody tell you you can't. Just remember to get back out from under the table <laughs> eventually <laughs> and move forward. Um, I think, you know, yeah, just practically, it is true that no matter how much time you think you need and no matter how much money you think you need, it's going to be more and just be prepared for it. But the step backs are always learning opportunities. Um, and I'll give more and more universal design example if I can, because I remember when we first started in um, working with our design team and we had our users in and we had a prototype that I loved and we had the users come in and the first one picked, first person picked up the, the prototype and it wasn't working for them. And I was devastated. It didn't work. We spent so much time. They didn't like it. And our head of the design team said, this is the best thing. High five. This is the best thing that could have happened. We're going out for drinks after this. And I said, are you out of your mind? It didn't work. This is how it works. That's the gift. The gift is we just learned what we could do better. Mm -hmm. Doesn't feel good when it happened. Right. But look for the gift, learn how to how to make it the opportunity to do better. 
that's excellent advice. Um, because you're right. It's, you know, it's those customers that complain about something or say something that isn't right. And we want to say, Oh, whatever. We have customers that like it. So forget about you. <laughs> but really, you know, there's a lot of learnings that can be there, especially in the testing phase. So that's awesome advice. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, sharing your awesome story. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Anytime. I'll talk about it anytime. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.